The Reimagining Development podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people, or part of coastal Sydney, and the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people of Canberra, and a number of others across this country. We give our thanks and pay our respects to all Indigenous people. Sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Development Conversations on the New Development Policy. This podcast is from Goodwill Hunters in a special series in collaboration with the Australian Council for International Development, or ACFIT. I'm Rachel Mason-Nunn. And I'm Jessica McKenzie, Chief of Policy and Advocacy at ACFID. You may have listened to our eight-episode series, which ran earlier in the year, where we featured a range of guests, each speaking to a different element of development, which we hoped would inform the development policy. These topics included Southeast Asia, the Pacific and economics, youth and children, a First Nations perspective and blended finance, and the guests included the Minister for International Development in the Pacific, Pat Conroy, as well as other esteemed guests. That was then, but now we're returning to the microphone after the fact. It's been just 24 hours since the policy was officially launched, Rachel, and we're here to unpack it all. We are, and I think what's really exciting, Jess, is I don't know your thoughts on the policy. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't had this chat before. We haven't had this chat. We we saw each other at the policy launch yesterday. We were all there along along with many of our colleagues, but we haven't had a chance to sit down and and debrief, which is really exciting. Um, but as I said, we were both there at the launch at, at Parliament House yesterday. What did you think was the energy in the room? Oh, look, I found it really exciting. I think it was great. There's an excellent blog by Dr. Cam Hill looking at the history of Australian aid launches that I was reading recently. It would have been so easy for them to put this up online and for it to be yet another policy that not sat on a shelf, but sat on a website, if you will. And instead, we had Minister Penny Wong, Minister Pat Conroy, we had Rod Brazier, the head of the development group at DFAT, and there was a series of Pacific and Southeast Asian ambassadors. It was everyone in the room. It was in the main committee room at Parliament House. And there was there was due gravitas. Can I say that? It felt like it was an important piece. That really meant a lot to me. How about you? Yeah, I really agree. It felt celebratory. And... I was asking a few colleagues how they felt being there and so many said it's just a relief to be holding this policy. Like we have been talking about this and waiting for this as a sector for so long and just to have it in our hands and have a policy and a, and a really good policy at that, but we'll get to that, <laughs> was really exciting. So I, I, it felt like a jubilant and, and celebratory energy. It was really nice to see both ministers standing there saying why it mattered. It felt like after all this um, prominence that we've seen for defence and for diplomacy, development's time had come. It was really good. Okay, so Rachel, if it was nice to see that policy physically in people's hands, I'm going to ask you, in terms of the wider context, what's the meaning of this policy? Why does it matter? Mm. I mean, if we think back to when we first heard a new policy was coming, It was under the previous government. It was pre-COVID when we were told that there would be a new international development policy. Consultations had kicked off, I believe. We'd started thinking about it as a sector and then COVID hit and all of a sudden any prospect of thinking long-term and strategically had to be replaced with short-term targeted and temporary measures to help our region just get by in, in what was an unprecedented challenge. And so our new international development policy was put on hold. And it 
it, it, you know, it feels like we've come full circle. Like we're certainly not through COVID. The the economic and, and social impacts of COVID continue to be felt here in Australia and throughout the region. And so the relevance of the temporary measures we adopted through COVID still stand, but it was as though finally we got a chance to step back and think strategically and think long-term about what development means to Australia and what our strategic advantage is as a development partner. So I think that's one aspect of it. And I think the other is this is something that the new government made commitments around when they came into government. We know that uh, one of their policies is still to increase the aid budget. And this is a government that, you know, under the leadership of Minister Penny Wong has taken a really fresh approach to diplomacy and engagement with our region and thinking strategically about who we are as a development partner. And so I think that's the other reason that this policy really means something is because it's a manifestation of that, of of all of the conversations and, and signalling that we've seen this new government do around development and diplomacy. How does that stand with your views? No, that sounds just about right. I was reflecting on Minister Conroy's comments on our podcast together actually a few months ago, and he said, I want this development policy to survive multiple elections. So it's part of the DNA of how we do development and international policy in this country. And I was really reflecting on that quote when I was reading it. And they put so much work into these three documents, just to be very clear to those listening. It's not just one policy. Three pieces were all launched in parallel. There was the development policy itself, There was a performance framework attached, and then there was a development finance review as well. But there's so much work in them. And I think it matters, Rachel, I was thinking it it is a long-term policy. You can feel it. They don't say it explicitly that it's a decade, but they do say it's the first in a decade. Um, So there's a sort of implication there. But if it's in the DNA of how we do development and international policy in this country, if you you can talk about capability, you can talk about having an effective program all you want, but it's these documents that not only signal that, but they set out the pathway for how we change behaviour. Completely agree. So in your view, Jess, what are the key wins? What are you most excited about in this policy? And I think when I say key wins, it's important to acknowledge the significant work of, of ACFED of so many of your members, of so many of our peers in the sector in making submissions, in participating in consultations. like We have been so involved as a sector in shaping this policy. And I asked a few people in the room yesterday, do you see your inputs reflected in this policy? And so I'm really interested to hear from you. What do you think the key wins are for us as a sector? Oh, some great wins in there. And I think it's a whole of, I think people have been referring to it as an ecosystem of development sector people. So I just want to acknowledge as well, Rachel, the the managing contractors, the multilaterals. I think there were over 200 submissions, 211. I know that over 50 were from our sort of cohort, but it's just lovely to see. And I think to to their credit, the government really has been listening. What am I, what do I think the wins are? Well, first and foremost, a new civil society partnership fund. That has to be described as a flagship in this policy. That is really exciting. So that's going to be co-designed, we know, with government and partners, including, we hope, members of our NGO community, which would be great. And I've heard a few ideas included in what that will address, including shrinking civic space and local organisations, local NGOs in countries like Fiji, Vanuatu, Solomon Islands. Um, So we're really pleased that the government's prioritising civil society strengthening in this policy. That has to be a big win 
Yeah, I think so too. And I think what's great about that initiative is it feels like we've directly listened to a lot of our Pacific counterparts telling us that they're concerned about shrinking civic space. Like I feel like so many of the conversations I've had over the last 12 months with with colleagues in the Pacific has been about the, the crackdown on NGOs speaking out and, and civic space for them to occupy. And this is a this is a really concerning issue in the region. And so it feels like this initiative is is directly responding to that, which is which is great. Like it, this feels like a big win for the Pacific for me. It is, especially when there's always that tension that donors refer to between sovereignty and helping promote democratic efforts in a country. Um, a lot of our members have been telling us stories about those examples that are really tangible about shrinking civic space. And it's not just NGOs, it's also the media. It's the way that all kinds of movement groups are able to articulate what they need and the um, any repercussions for those voices being heard. So yet to be seen what that will entail. It hasn't been designed, that civil society partnership fund. There's no funding allocation yet, but it's a really great flagship in the in the policy. I'm really pleased with it. I was also delighted to see a new humanitarian public-facing standalone policy. So that was something that we were really advocating for and delighted to see because it warrants it. We, we can see the increasing number of crises in the world. We know that you require a whole of government and whole of society approach to how you respond to these crises. And if we can't have a policy where we bring that unity together on a, on a few pages and can agree to how we're going to approach these things, then how on earth can we do it in practice? Mm, I, I agree. I think a lot of a lot of groups would be breathing a sigh of relief to know that we're going to have that standalone document. Um, it, it is really important. Do we know when or sort of a timeline for when we can expect to see that new humanitarian strategy? They haven't given a timeline yet, but the other subsequent strategies that are flowing from this policy, like gender equality, LGBTQIA and people with disabilities, those three strategies are all going to be about six to nine months. So I would imagine humanitarian, because it's a little bit later in the piece and only just been announced, will probably be another nine months from where we're at now. Unclear though, I'm not sure. Uh, How did you feel about climate being so prominent? That has to be a win, Rachel. It's definitely a win. I think it was particularly prominent in the development finance review. And I think, is is it worth just... For for our listeners who aren't across all of the different documents that we were given yesterday, because there were a few, we do have, as you mentioned earlier, um, both the new international development policy, but also the development finance review. And that was the document where I felt that our commitment to being a partner to the region on climate and energy transition was most prolific. Really? Yeah, I did. I mean, climate is mentioned a lot in the in the development policy and there's definitely a commitment to it. But what I got from the development finance review was a sense that Australia recognises a monumental shift is happening, particularly in Southeast Asia with the energy transition, and that our neighbours, they're going to do this regardless, but we need to be a really valuable partner in that process. And I felt like there was great acknowledgement of the role that we can play in helping to unlock development finance, particularly for SMEs um, that are in the renewable energy space. That felt like a really tangible commitment to being an energy partner to the region. 
Mm, that's interesting. This is why I like the fact that we haven't spoken about this before. <laughs> we don't know what each other thinks. Um, I was really struck by what a central core issue it was in the broader international development policy. It was really, for me, after you know nine years of not really being sure where climate sat in the development program, and often our membership have been more hesitant to badge a lot of their activities that they were already doing as climate and a lot of WASH activities sort of being rebadged as climate as well. It was so nice to see a strong, robust, meaningful commitment to climate front and centre, and I felt like it ran all the way through the policy. My question was, how are we going to back that up with resourcing and programming? Will there be funding for climate uh, programming because we haven't seen much of a shift from the $2 billion uh, dollar commitment that the coalition announced, which was 2020 to 2025. So will there be funds that flow from it? But I hadn't actually connected that um, it was also as prominent in the development finance review. So for those listeners who are less familiar with development finance, if I was to characterise it really simplistically, I think development finance is a term that's used for everything that's not traditional grant programming. So traditional grant programs are where you would provide funds to a program and it's it's uh, committed as part of ODA, Official Development Assistance, whereas development finance normally refers to things like loans, whether they're sovereign loans to countries or whether they're non-sovereign to businesses, things like blended finance, philanthropics fit under that category. So there was an entirely separate review looking at how we engage in those ways that are non-traditional grant financing, sorry, not, not traditional grant financing. And Rachel, it makes perfect sense to me that climate would be the main avenue for that work. And gender lens investing, I imagine, too. And gender lens investing, which the Development Finance Review said really clearly is a is a huge strength strength of Australia. Like investing in women is one of our most popular and, and, and arguably most effective aid programs. And I think, yeah, I think that's what came through really clearly in the Development Finance Review and also in Minister Wong's comments yesterday was there exists a huge financing gap between what's available and what's needed to achieve the SDGs. And it was nice to hear Minister Wong go back to the SDGs. Like, I I think sometimes we forget about their significance, but it was a reminder that that is the only globally agreed framework for how we move forward. And I think what the Development Finance Review really acknowledged was that we have a role to play in unlocking that essential finance to to fund that energy transition. And that wasn't a surprise, right? Like we knew this particularly with programs like the Indonesia-Australia Climate Partnership, um, where it made the news a month ago that that first tranche of funding of 50 million had already gone, um, had already gone out to SMEs in the renewable energy space. So we knew this was a commitment of Australia, but I, I feel like we really saw that you know, we, we've doubled down and, and we want to be a partner um, mobilising climate finance for the region. Yeah, and Minister Conroy also spoke to it as well in his speech in Parliament, but it wasn't in his transcript of the speech on his website. It was interesting. He was talking about the fact that for every $1 spent by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade through these impact investing programs, $5 is mobilised from the private sector towards development outcomes. So he was saying with a return rate like that, they've been doing some pilots and he has high hopes for what this will do for climate in the region. I think he was referring to Southeast Asia, but it was um, a really interesting part of his speech. But Rachel, I want to come back to what you said about emphasis on the sustainable development goals. That for me was the final win 
of this policy. If, while we're on the winds, I know we're closing off and probably going to talk about what needs more work or what we look forward to. But um, it was this, I was so worried there wouldn't be a big emphasis on development impact, not because I don't think that that's a big priority of this government, just because so much of the news cycle is dominated by geostrategic imperatives and discussion of China as a as a competitive partner in our region and the cost of living at home is so difficult. So I thought people would be focused solely on national interest, but instead under the objectives, there it was. It was talking about sustainable development and poverty reduction as one of the goals for how you must, one of the objectives, I beg your pardon, for how this development program will operate. And for me, that that meant so much because that is exactly what it was so nice in the 2011 strategy we had where they said the purpose of the development program is poverty alleviation, full stop. And it felt like an echo of that, I suppose. And the SDGs were a big part of that too. Yeah. Oh, I I, I absolutely agree. And it it was evident the the importance of the SDGs to both ministers yesterday. And it also tied, I thought, to their remarks on the importance of the multilateral donors as partners for Australia. I I, I, I don't know, what were your, what were your thoughts on those comments? Like I sensed, I think there was an appetite for re- resetting or reconsidering how we use the multilateral donors as a vehicle, particularly for mobilising development finance, but I didn't sense much more than that, I suppose. Yeah, I thought that was interesting signalling. I know Minister Wong's been very clear that Australia wants to um, try for a seat on the UN Security Council, and I'm fully aware of the multilateral implications of that. And I know that the Labor government has a strong history of supporting the multilateral architecture and being a good global citizen is all part of that equation. Um, a lot of we we have several multilateral um, organisations in our membership too. I have to just be very transparent, um, and they do wonderful work. And then also we partner with a lot of them. So when there's a lot of humanitarian crises, often DFAT will provide funding to, say, the World Food Programme, and in turn that will be passed on to our members to help deliver. So there's there's really a sort of um, interconnected ecosystem, I suppose. What I'm very conscious of is there's so much discussion, particularly happening with the Overseas Development Institute at the moment, and a lot of the multilats in Europe are talking about multilateral development bank reform in particular and it not being fit for purpose. And I've been watching a lot of those conversations and I just think... Most other donors right now are talking about how we have to fix what's broken and how with very finite resources globally, with a lot of donors dropping from, you know, the Swedes went from 1% down to 0.8% ODA GNI quite historically. The Brits have revoked their 0.7 and gone down to 0.5. They're all still much higher than 0.19, which is where Australia's at. But with these really finite resources, we have to make sure that what we have is being spent the right way. And that's translated in the Northern Hemisphere to a lot of talk about how we change the systems we've got. So I guess that was playing on my mind when they mentioned that. What about you? Yeah, I I agree. And tied to that for me was the commentary about EMIF. I think the importance of EMIF was, was reinforced as a program. Um, and there was a decision to rebrand EMIF to be called Australian Development Investments, was it? ADI? Yeah, ADI. Which is an interesting decision. I, I don't know if perhaps I just feel quite attached to the name EMIF um, and we're all quite familiar with it. And I, it, it's interesting that that we're doubling down on Australia being in the title that uh, I think once again is evidence that we really want Australia to be perceived as an important development finance partner. 
to the region and that it's a big part of, I guess, our, our aid brand and identity. But it'll be interesting to see what transpires, particularly now that it was sort of out of the pilot phase of EMIF and, and into this, this longer term phase. Yeah, I think the I think the minister referred to it as greater brand recognition by taking a program that's been a pilot and helping it launch to become Australian Development Investments. Um, I know that there's a really good piece that's been written on the Dev Policy blog by Purdy Bowden and Bridget O'Farrell on this topic, actually, just this week, well-timed. But I think it's a chance for us to look at these new ways of working that the Development Finance Review speaks to. So DFAT has a whole portfolio of small programs that have been making forays into blended finance, right? You mentioned investing in women. There's a few others as well. There's the work being done with Convergence. There's EMIF. I don't think many people would recognise the EMIF name, Rachel. I think that's probably a small group of us in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think uh, what's so nice is that many of those elements in that portfolio are the beginnings of a development finance institution, which we know Australia doesn't have and many other donors do. And ACFID's been talking about this since 2019. But what I really like is rather than try to establish something standalone, a new DFI where we're sort of trying to work on our in-house coherence at the moment without trying to recreate too many moving pieces, what they're doing instead is consolidating the functions of what that would be. And I think that greater brand recognition and calling it ADI, I don't know, but um, presumably that's, you know, that's, something that could grow to become bigger. They, we know that in the last budget in May, we saw the cap lifted from 40 million up to 250 million. So they haven't put that money yet towards it. But I imagine the 50 million that you were mentioning that Prime Minister Albanese announced for the Indonesia Climate Partnership, I imagine that will be part of that. And I think we're going to see a lot more out of this in the future. Yeah, I agree. Jess, I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on the performance framework, because at the launch yesterday, I was asking my IDCC colleagues what, which of the documents they had read first. And all of us were sort of either the development finance review or the new aid policy were the documents we were most excited about. And one person said that she read the performance framework. <laughs> and I thought, gosh, I, I, it's just the last thing I would, I would pick to read. But it's obviously really important content. And I think you will have thoughts on it. It is. It is really important content. I I skipped straight to it as well. <laughs> no, um, I think it's really exciting to see a performance framework like this. I think we've seen, I, I've really enjoyed reading the development policy. I think the development finance review was long awaited. And I think the performance framework with its three tiers um, is going to be a really useful document. I think that's going to tell us a lot about what's going to drive behaviour and change incentives. For me, for me, that's probably the most interesting nuts and bolts bit, the plumbing. Um, so they, there's a lot in there. It's not particularly new in terms of the overarching structure. So tier one, tier two, tier three, they have these three tiers, which I can go through if you want, but essentially they're about measuring Australia's contribution to development cooperation, which is in thus tier two. Tier one is about the context in which we're operating, so the poverty indicators for the region. And then tier three is more about in-house programming and what we do. But those three tiers have been around for a while. So that was, for example, those three tiers were in existence under the last policy, partnerships for recovery. Um, they made very clear that they're not going to re-establish the Office of Development Effectiveness in this. But what they have been talking about is a real 
increased commitment to evaluation capability. They've talked about an enhanced role for the Development Programme Committee, which has both whole of government and independent representatives on it. And their role will include monitoring implementation of evaluations. I found that really interesting. And they're going to really strengthen the uptake of evaluations into decision-making, it sounds like. Um, so what I found most exciting was there's a resuscitation of something we used to have pre-2020. It was uh, always called the Performance of Australian Aid Report, and ACFID's been calling for a revival of this for some time, and uh, they are now going to be doing that. It's called the Annual Performance of Australian Development Cooperation Report. So that's coming back, which is really exciting. And I believe they're going to start with the first report early next year, possibly February or March. And what's great about that is I was concerned that some of the performance framework, it has a lot of data collection points through it, but I was worried there weren't baselines or targets. So for example, it mentions the transparency index and Australia's fallen several places on that over the last few years. And they say that they will be looking at Australia's ranking. But I, I was reading it and I was thinking from, okay, well, where are we now? That's a baseline, obviously, that I can measure. But where do we want to get to? Where's appropriate? So where's our target? Like, what does success look like, if you know what I mean? But what's so great is in this annual performance of Australian Development Cooperation Report that's coming out next year, I believe they're hoping to use that to establish baselines. And then each subsequent report will be able to then quantify progress, if you will. So I thought that was pretty cool. What about you? I think that's really cool as well. And, and fantastic that we'll have this year on year pulse check of the performance of, of our aid program. So I, I think that's really great. Um, I think I, uh, I'm interested to see how the evaluations are used in decision making, like what practically does this mean for, for aid programs that aren't performing as well as we would hope them to, or also to for the ones that are really performing and exceeding expectations, how might we invest more in them? So I think the, the governance and program management around this will be really interesting to see. But the other element of this that I think is great is that the development policy commits to sharing and making more aid data accessible, which anyone who's attended Australasian aid conferences or other conferences in our sector in recent years would have heard these calls for um, aid data to be more available and accessible online because it is notoriously hard to find and also because we're sort of often recreating the wheel with projects because there hasn't been a central um, repository of the enormous amount of of data and information that is collected through our aid program. So I think that's really great and I'm excited to see what what we as a sector can do. Oh, I can't wait. So there's these three new features, the, the online development portal, which I think the scope of that is a bit unclear. So I really look forward to that. I imagine they're probably trying to build it themselves at the moment. They also mentioned annual bilateral development partnership talks, which is another new feature. Um, and then there's this mid-cycle strategic review that they're going to do throughout the, they're also refreshing the development program policy process, which is a, a new term for the country strategies, as far as I can tell. Um, they, they mentioned they might revisit the aid programming guide. And the other really interesting feature was this investment in senior responsible officers who will be at posts. And they're supposed to be helping with um, oversight of the effectiveness of the development program in each post. So SROs, they're being referred to, and presumably there'd be a bit of a network built around those. 
But hopefully the evidence they're gathering will feed into decision making and they'll be working closely with the development program committee. So I think that's going to be a really interesting feature. My worry is that we're sort of burdening people who are already very busy with more work without new FTE. I feel like that with the development finance review as well. Like everyone I speak to at DFAT seems to be really exhausted and <laughs> needing more resourcing. That's a really good point. And I wonder how uh, does this have implications for program level evaluations as well? And will, will we need to increase the resourcing for that? And um, I think we've covered off on a lot of the key wins, but one that, that we haven't mentioned is the reference to First Nations-led um, diplomacy and and development, which I also think is a really huge win of this policy. Absolutely. And I feel like at moments like this, we need some of our previous guests on, like Joe Morrison, who had the episode with us, or Christy Graham to talk through about EMIF. But um, absolutely, that was such a first for a development policy in Australia. It was really welcome to see. And alongside that, there are a few other references. I'm sure you caught them, but they just all speak to the tone of the policy. Biodiversity was in there. Sexual and reproductive health was in there, which was really welcome. You know, not all people tend to put those in their policies for very unfortunate reasons. What I was really sad to see was that despite the launch of an LGBTQIA policy that has been um, announced and is undertaken at the moment, it didn't feature in the development policy. And I think that was a real shame. Yeah, I think that's right. And and also young people. That It felt like that was missing for me, um, was enough reference to the fact that we have a, and, and as we know from having um, the wonderful Senu Harath on the series, we know we have a youth bulge in, in many parts of the region. And, and not only that, but that young people create really exciting opportunities for us to capitalise upon and to partner with them and support their endeavours and and their entrepreneurialism. I felt like that was missing. What did you think? Yeah, that was something we advocated for and was in our submission as well. And I know you and I spent some time talking about that on the podcast. I think that would have been a really good opportunity. I know there's only so many strategies they can announce and... um, I can see how children and young people could be folded into other strategies like gender, where they're looking at women and girls, and they will, I'm sure, address um, those rights, but it would have been really nice to have had a cross-cutting or a thematic strategy that was addressing it directly. Agree. What else was missing in your view? Anything else that that particularly needs more work or, or was missing? Yes. Well, LGBTQIA was a shame, but we know that there will be a strategy that flows from this and we all look forward to contributing to that. I think that's going to be really important. I was interested to see them double down on the regional approach. There was a real embedded Indo-Pacific focus and I feel like it's quite important to take a whole-of-world approach, particularly when we're talking about need and the hunger crisis and poverty alleviation. A lot of the world's poorest people are actually outside of the Indo-Pacific as well. So that's particularly pertinent for humanitarian assistance, but for development as well. So I guess I, I was thinking as I read it, I, I want to prioritise need over geography was what I thought, but they made a very compelling case as to why, and I completely understand it wasn't a surprise to me. Uh, this is our strength, this is our region, this is where we are based, and this is where our knowledge base also uh, is most appropriate. Um, I think also tangible commitments for how the development programme will lift people out of poverty. So I think poverty alleviation was mentioned as an objective. 
And then I think, though, that the how we achieve that and how we really address poverty, there was not too much detail on how that would happen. So that's probably something I'm going to be watching for in the years to come. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I agree with all of those. And and certainly the regional approach was evident. There were references to the 2050 strategy for the Blue Pacific, references also to the ASEAN outlook on the Indo-Pacific. So these flagship documents that our, our neighbours have have created, but then no reference to sort of the development aspirations of other parts of the world and how we might support them. And I think where that's most significant is around humanitarian. I know Ackford said this, I think, in your media release yesterday that particularly for humanitarian need, that that is largely concentrated in other regions of the world. And so I, I expect that when we do see the humanitarian strategy, it will take that whole of world approach, we would hope. I hope so. I think we'll we'll have to wait and see. I also think, as you were referencing things like the Pacific 2050 report and others, I think so much is going to come down to these new development partnership plans, the uh, DPPs, as they're called, which I think are replacing the country strategies. Um, that So that process is going to take place over the next 18 months, basically. And, and we've heard that they will all be undertaken at a country level and completed by the end of 2024. So really a lot of the diagnosis and a lot of the design work and a lot of the prioritisation is going to have to happen at the country level. So as as I think through what Solomon Islands' priorities might be or Timor-Leste and when those conversations happen with those different departments and ministries and hopefully civil society groups as well, I think that will be where those local priorities get teased out. And I hope that's beyond the Indo-Pacific. I hope that is very true for anywhere we are spending ODA. Um, and for places in such as Africa and the Middle East as well, we've been really advocating for a, um, a revitalization of the support that used to be provided to Palestine, for example, based on the need. And I'm sure most people saw the airstrikes there recently, but there's an enormous amount of need and where, you know, the comparative advantage of Australia's aid program would be totally appropriate. We have a very strong humanitarian program. We have a great gender program. We have many strengths, and I think there are places in the world that could benefit from that enormously. Mm, certainly. I'm really curious to see how the development partnership plans are developed. Um, I think that'll be great. I, I think um, it, the, the other interesting aspect of this is the media has really been framing this new development policy around the geopolitics of it, which is not surprising, Um a lot of the aid commentary that we see in media does focus on rivalry with others in the region and Australia positioning for geostrategic prominence. And that's what the commentary on this policy has largely been. Is it helpful? Uh, what do you think? <laughs> um, look, I really think that national interest and... Um, poverty reduction are not mutually exclusive at all. I think development outcomes and development impact are totally aligned with national interests. So for me, it's a relatively simple equation. I don't like it when you have programs that are operating um, purely for influence purposes. I think where people tend to conflate development impact and influence, that's a real problem because no one no one can really talk about what influence is for. Influence is sort of a cachet until you you deploy that currency, as I think Heather Murphy was saying on Dev Intel Lab the other day. 
I I find the narrative really interesting and I think it's where the all-tools-of-statecraft discussion that the Asia-Pacific Defence Diplomacy Development Dialogue comes in, AP4D, and they've been doing great work on this, but it's really, you know, Australia's foreign policy is quite complex and it requires many different arms of government. And as far as I can see, the development program is probably one of the most appropriate. It is our most important tool for addressing these global challenges that are so complex, right? Like you look at climate change, you look at all these humanitarian refugee flows, you look at the pandemic outbreaks, they're not going to be solved by military hardware, right? So for me, I find the geostrategic narrative in the media interesting. I think it wakes us up to what's happening overseas or in our region, and it re-emphasizes the case for development. And I think Minister Wong did this so well yesterday in Parliament. I think the policy does it really uh, in a really sophisticated way. I, I just hope that we retain that development impact lens through and through and it doesn't get distracted. What about you? Completely agree. Um, completely agree. And, and the policy did acknowledge very explicitly that there is a renewed recognition of the role of development as a tool of statecraft for us, and we we have been explicit about that, and I think I think that's okay. Um, I think the the reference though to other development partners in the region. One point that was really critical yesterday that was acknowledged, I think, in the speech by Minister Wong, was the debt burden in the Pacific, and the fact that the public debt in the Pacific is expected to double by 2025 compared with 2019 and that the cost of interest repayments on that debt is already eroding frontline services. So that's really significant and thus we have a really significant fiduciary responsibility here. Um, And I I think that's, I'd like to see more commentary on that. I would too. And there was this disconnect in some ways in the policy where they were talking about not wanting to contribute to debt distress and then they were also showcasing lots of their programs that provide sovereign loans. And I know those are carefully designed, but I do just want to make sure that we are at all times making sure we reconcile that dilemma because we do not want to be adding to debt distress right now, and especially not for climate activities, which the people in the Pacific have played no part in contributing to almost statistically, and yet are suffering all of the impacts from. And it comes back as well to that conversation we were having about MDBs earlier, Rachel, but ActionAid and Jubilee, and Jubilee does so much great work on this um, debt distress as well. But they've just produced a report called Hidden Cash for Fossils. And it's about how multilateral banks are diverting Australian tax dollars to fossil fuels. And I just think we really have to see how all these things interconnect, right? And if we have a policy that's talking about development outcomes and some of the the ambition in these ministerial statements about playing a better part in in the world and, and helping address these really complex challenges, then we need to be making sure every piece is playing its part, if you know what I mean. Yeah, we certainly do. Um, I I think it's a great framework for how we, it's, it's a revitalisation. It feels exciting. So much work has gone into this. I really appreciated the consultation phase. I think it's an excellent framework for how we go forward. My one key message, I think, would be we have to really watch for implementation. So the words are fabulous the way that this hits the ground, and DPPs will play a big part in that, the way evaluations are played, the way these things are co-designed will be essential. So I'm really excited and I feel like we're just getting going. I don't know about you whether you felt that most of your asks were reflected or you know what you're going to be watching out for. I, I think so. That There is a lot to like about this policy and I felt, 
I felt really happy and excited and energized leaving Parliament last night. And I and I feel excited about the era that we're entering as a sector. I guess there's always a bit of trepidation with this, uh, with the new policy because you think, okay, now we have to do it. Like, yeah. how's this going to go? And so that's I that's the best bit, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm excited. Don't do get it. me wrong, but like, let let's get in there and do it. But it, it'll be really interesting to see how the next couple of years shape up. Um, and I think um, a sense of um, of generosity in our knowledge sharing is really important because there are some uncharted territories that we're entering and there is such a wealth of, of knowledge and experience in this sector and continuing to share that with one another as we go down this path of implementation will be really critical. So I'm I'm excited and I'm, um, I'm really keen to see how we move forward. And, and I think it's great, Jess, that that so many of the topics that we discussed in this series are reflected in the policy in really tangible ways. Yeah. And look, I think there was a huge amount of ministerial involvement. They really, they drove this process, which is fantastic. And I think taking the time to do it um, was really important. I also just wanted to acknowledge it would have been so much fun to write. I know not everyone would say that, but I think the team behind the scenes, probably the the, the Penny Mortons, the Natalie Cohens, the the Louis Henleys of the world, the Sam Beavers, they've and many, many, many more have done a phenomenal job pulling it together. And I it was so much more work than I expected as I was reading it. So they've done so well. But um the work now begins. Well, that brings an end to our series on the new development policy. It's it's done, it's out, and we're proud to have played a role in its formulation. And we've had a ball producing this podcast series and really hope that you, our listener, have enjoyed listening to it just as much. <laughs> Judging by the listener numbers and the feedback we've received, we're really pleased to have made the impact we have. Thank you all so much for your, for your comments. It's not the end of the ACFID Goodwill Hunters collaboration either. We are delighted. We can't give too much away at this stage, but please stay tuned. I've been Jessica McKenzie, Chief of Policy at ACFID. And I've been Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters. Bye for now.